Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib. This episode's guest is the professor and author and spiritualism and AI researcher Simone Natale, the author of Supernatural Entertainment's Victorian Spiritualism and the Rise of Modern Media Culture, and also Deceitful Media, Artificial Intelligence, and Social Life After the Turing Test. I wanted to start this episode by talking about AI a bit, the way it sees the news, even if we're not talking about AI per se, uh, but chatbots and other content generators. It's all over the place right now, and recently a bunch of tech bosses and other concerned parties have called for a halt on training AI systems. Uh, The quote is, a stepping back from the dangerous race to ever larger, unpredictable black box models with emergent capabilities. Signatories like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, uh, they all are expressing concern. It seems to me to be more of a concern for industry and capitalism than for life and humanity, but we can imagine what other concerns might be. The AI terror future we've been dreaming of for years. (laughs) Skynet, Terminator, Ex Machina, 2001 A Space Odyssey, whatever. All those movies and that fear and that letter um, that's signed by now 5,500 people or more leads us to the question, why do people want it? I mean, who cares if we can get computers to do dumb parlor tricks like creating images of you on Mars or having a human voice speaking through a robot head or whatever, if the stakes are as high as Skynet <laughs> and uh, you know Terminator made out of liquid metal? Who wants it? Why? And how is that desire functioning in the first place? I'm not sure, obviously, that I can answer all those questions, but one of the first things that came to mind as I was pondering all that was the Kathy McGinty phone sex prank. (laughs) So if you're unfamiliar, in 2000, uh, Julia Rickert and Derek Erdman posted a fake profile online of a woman called Kathy McGinty, and men called her for phone sex. But instead of getting an actual person, they got answers pre-recorded by Julia and Derek into a Yamaha recording device and sampler. When the men called um, to talk to Kathy, Derek and Julia also recorded these calls. The results were completely bizarre. The men called, the responses are obviously canned, they sound weird, they sound like samples, and many of the responses that Kathy gives are absolutely bizarre, but the men just kept going for it anyway. Their desire led them through. It, it wasn't easy finding any extended clips of those calls that I felt like I could just put at the top of the show. Um, aside from all the pre-recorded Kathy moaning, some of which sounds like she's like being dropped into a volcano. <laughs> it's so extreme and hilarious. There's also, you know, the men moaning for real, and there's a lot of real phone call sex interaction. Not that I shy away from any of that, but um, just at the top of the show, I'm just going to play a little clip, which is just also completely bonkers, so you can get the idea of what I'm talking about here and how absurd it is. What would you do to me? I want to jam my thumb in your dickhole. What would you want to do that for? 
Satan controls my robotic vagina. Sounds pretty crazy to me. Okay, so now I know you're going to all go out and seek the rest of those because they're pretty great. But the point being, when we desire something, it starts to change our lens on reality. Desire is extremely important. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it's running the show. Something that I touch on all the time is uh, a passage in a book called Enjoying What We Don't Have by Todd McGowan, who's been on the show episode 47 and 70. What Todd points out in one of his many musings uh, and mullings over of psychoanalysis is that before Freud in Western culture, our real foundation person was Aristotle. And his conception was that we were subjects of knowledge. That is that we learn something and then we learn something new that overturned the old information. Uh, and that's how we progressed. But Freud looked at the world and saw something quite different. He saw that we are not subjects of knowledge, but desire. We want things and we want other things. And even when we're repulsed by something, it's because we want something else. It's because we're fantasizing. And that's what's running the show. Part of why the whole Kathy McGinty thing worked is that we're not aroused by anything literal, but by cues. Our desires are set into motion by certain cues. Um, this is why people can be triggered, even if, you know, the thing that they're hearing is not necessarily a real depiction of what they themselves went through. There might be a cue that would set off a response. That's also why we can be aroused. Just ask anybody <laughs> when they're a teenager why they get aroused by the most absurd things. But let's take you know, sort of adult examples, extreme examples, objective sexuals, right? People who fall in love with objects, the Eiffel Tower or a car or a ride in an amusement park, and they're aroused by them. You might think that that's ridiculous, but something that's more common might be in your life, a, a dildo or puppy play or whatever, objects that are accoutrement to your desire or cue you to be aroused, role play, whatever way you seek a cue to have a more intense experience of your desire. Or for that matter, when I was doing adult work, the many lesbian fans that I had that sent me <laughs> letters, I was doing gay porn with other men. So they couldn't have wanted to see the men exactly, not in the standard sense of where they want to see on screen what they were going to do with each other, but rather that seeing men in this way had an arousing cue for them, a cue for their arousal. So, okay, when it comes to AI, there are certain cues that evoke something in us, that evoke our desires and our fantasies. When it comes to AI, we're deeply invested in somehow wanting this thing to achieve consciousness and maybe seeing consciousness where it's not there. Even the AI dystopian movies are fantasies after all. That is to say, things we fantasize about and with. We're mulling over these sentient robots and computers and how they're going to relate to us all the time in the artistic sphere. So what is it? What is it evoking? What is this evoking? What are the cues? A good place to start is something my guest on this episode, Simone Natale, points out that 
the metric for deciding if AI is really conscious is based on whether or not it can fool us. Way back to the Turing test, the idea is if it can fool us, it is indistinguishable from consciousness. And maybe, you know, we can just forget that it only appears to be so and that, you know, we can accept that it is conscious if it fools us. In other words, a sort of distance is needed for us to experience AI as alive and must be like us, but not like us. Like a mirror, we need it looking back at us, witnessing us, communicating with us so we can feel real. Just like when you look in a mirror, you can sense your own countenance in a different way that you can just walking around when you can't see your own face. So there's a sense of distance, a deception, a deceptive element, and those are all components of this desire uh, that we're forming and working with when it comes to AI. We need AI to look like us for any of this to work. We can see this in the fact that when people imagine AI, it's always speaking in human language. It looks like humans and more. Simone's other realm of uh, investigation was spiritualism. And there's a lot of parallels there. And in fact, we bring those together uh, in the show. Like spiritualism, um, where the dead were considered to be apparitions that look human. That's the sort of robot thing. Oh, they look like people. They speak like people. In spiritualism, the apparitions looked human. They could speak like us. They could place a hand on the channeler and manifest their human faces from the darkness. Just like all of that, AI is in our image. Spiritualism, as it was popularly known, at least, was a materialistic form of spirituality. The world of the dead was basically like this world, full of just stuff, and it evinced itself through its stuffness, through ectoplasm and rattling tables and faces and dark and all that. With AI, we're seeking to discover through AI, through a computer becoming conscious, that the world is made up of material causes, that we really are in a world of stuff. Because after all, if we can create consciousness, then the world must be stuff. If we can just put together some, you know, <laughs> glass, you know, some sand and some stones and some melted down dinosaur bones, I guess that uh, all sounds quite poetic. Um, and throw some numbers together in there and have them interact with signals and all that kind of stuff. Well, then isn't that really just showing us that materialism is correct? Isn't that validating? And why would we want to know that? Well, if that's true, we're not responsible for anything, are we? Everything's just stuff. I believe this is part of why the language of inevitability comes up with AI so much. It's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. It's accelerating. It's coming. The singularity is near, is, you know, an AI adjacent uh, thing. This means if it's inevitable, if it's coming, that we can relinquish our desires and our responsibility to our desires and also divest ourselves um, from the thoughts of directing how the world goes. That is really in lockstep with the idea that it's all just stuff. 
in some ways, this mirrors the constant hum of climate change, where each day we're told by scientists that the end is coming and there's not much we can do about it. And now we're past this point and we're past this point and we're past that old point, which we said was the point that, you know, and so on and so forth. That's not a claim about climate change itself in any way or a comment on it. Just instead, that feeling of inevitability, um, which might in some ways be informing how we accept the kind of inevitability of AI. It might be giving a little extra energy <laughs> to that feeling. Because we're so willing <laughs> to do anything to not feel responsible for our desires or to take up our responsibility and ability to direct things so we can feel our helplessness is validated and that our hopelessness is worthwhile, we've already taken really terrible uh, strides to buy into the deception and the distance. What I have in mind here is the way we're willing to keep funneling energy and effort into creating something that looks conscious to us. Um, and so into that, that we're willing to destroy our connection to our work, to our efforts, to days that have meaning and value. Here's a clip from the episode where I talk about that a little bit. People who are programming are putting a language that they do understand on top of another language that maybe they understand, but it goes, there's so many languages communicating to each other all the way down that and I don't really actually like the word language, but it's something else. But they're doing something that's communicating all the way down, that they actually, at some point, their understanding is removed from the process of what's being communicated. They're just kind of using a, a certain set of signs, signals, symbols to communicate to others. But I was thinking about that, like, is, is AI in that case, like, if something would come or appear to be living to us, in some ways, maybe all we would be witnessing is an extreme form of labor alienation. Like I've done something that's so removed it from my field of understanding, connectivity, and even language and uh, cultural connection that it now appears to be, it's so distant from me that it appears to be alive. But in fact, all I'm experiencing is my own alienation looking back at me, you know? AI gives us an excuse to be hopeless and an excuse to buy into materialism. In other words, to actually avoid our desires and to languish in symptoms. But all of this requires a, a really active belief system for it to happen. It requires us to give in to being robotic, <laughs> to accept that the most algorithmic aspects of who we are are really who we are, are what makes us human. Uh, here's another clip from the episode to uh, express what I'm saying here. Oh, ChatGBT can produce a paper comparing two thinkers and it sounds like a real student. Well, yes, but that's a bad assignment. Why are we still giving that assignment? It always has looked to me like we're just making ourselves dumb enough to think that computers resemble us, not that we're making code or computers any smarter than us or that they will see us. It's just that we're you know, relying so much on our own predictable patterned behavior and unwilling to move beyond that or go anywhere else. And so all we're doing is 
sort of dumbing us ourselves down until we feel like we're looking in the mirror. Another way of saying all of this, uh, which I will use a clip from Simona here to express, is that ultimately we're creating uh, a new religion or we're working on a new religious project. And uh, <laughs> if our definitions of who we are and what we find useful, powerful, generative, nourishing are not you know, in good alignment, we will simply replicate with this new religious project the problems that we've had with old ones. Since the idea that non-belief, atheism through scientific understanding, has led us here, so non-belief has led us to this new religious project, we can see that we don't escape belief simply by asserting we don't believe in anything or that belief isn't good. Something else is demanded from us other than simply trying to turn off belief or magically wish it away with science. You know, at the end of the day, it will be still a matter of belief. You know, if someone wants to believe that uh, this is actually sentient, they they can believe that. Um, We we are, uh, we know, so I know that it's a you are sentient, uh, Connor, uh, because I, I I just know about my own experience with myself, mm-hmm. and I can project it onto you. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's different for me to understand that uh, a newborn baby, a one-day baby, and and I have a daughter, one-year-old daughter. So I know um, I'm not talking abstractly. So what mm-hmm. what she feels, what she um, so what she what is it? What is it happening in 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 her head, yeah? Uh, when she's one day old, and the same with uh, a dog, or with uh, uh, with a bat, with uh, with a frog, and so on, yeah. And um, and so there is this uh, um, this uh, this this issue also with uh, with machines that uh, we will never be in their heads, and uh, and this leaves open, uh, you know, personal beliefs and so on. And already people are are already. Uh, so believing that uh, it has reached uh, a strong AI. If you haven't read Harlan Ellison's story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, about people living inside the guts of a hyper-intelligent computer-like being turned god, (laughs) now might be a good time to do that. Not to see it as a possible future, so not to fall back into the trap of fantasizing about uh, AI dystopia, but instead to see the cruelty that uncultured and unnuanced belief can lead us into even if it relates to us at first having no belief um i'm going to end this intro (laughs) with a quote from the author bruce sterling who's been talking about ai for years and our misconceptions of it so here's bruce sterling i think that artificial intelligence is a bad metaphor It is not the right way to talk about what is happening, so I like to use the terms cognition and computation. Cognition is something that happens in brains, physical, biological brains. Computation is a thing that happens with software strings on electronic tracks that are inscribed out of silicone and put on fiberboard. They're not the same thing, and saying that makes the same mistake as in earlier times, when people said that human thought was like a steam engine. The idea comes from metaphysical problems. 
is mathematics thinking. If a machine can do mathematics, is it thinking? If a machine can play chess, is it thinking? There are a lot of things that machines can do, that algorithms can do, that software can do. They have very little to do with cognition. When you try to fit them into the bonsai box of intelligence, you actually limit the technology. It is as if you are trying to build a cargo aircraft, and you insist that it should also lay eggs because it can fly. It is a flying machine, and it has wings, and it flies, and you can even call it a bird, but aircraft are not actually birds, and the more bird-like you try to make them, the more you get in the way of the potential of the technology. Why would a 747 flap its wings? Why would it eat? If you consider that the technology is like somehow mystically inspiring flying machines, and they want to be more like an eagle, it is just a bad metaphor and really gets in the way. An entity like Siri, for instance, is not aspiring to become more human. Siri would want to be many times more efficient than that. Siri does not have one conversation like the conversation we are having here. Siri has hundreds of thousands of conversations at once. It wants to look through more databases faster. It does not want to read its way through a book quietly pondering like Alan Turing might have done. You do not want Siri to be more like Alan Turing. You want Siri to be more like Apple Inc. Against Everyone with Connor Beeb only exists because of listeners like you who become patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib to become a Patreon patron of the show. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Simone and Natale. Nice to be talking with you. Nice to be here, Connor. <laughs> um, okay. You know, it's it was a little hard for me to figure out where to start with you <laughs> because, you know, with the intersections of spiritualism and AI, both in content, popular culture, and media, entertainment, you know, I... I was trying to figure out where to sort of bring them both together first to talk about them. Cause we could talk about them discreetly, but I want to talk about all of it, you know? Um, and I was thinking <laughs> the thing that came to mind were these tapes made by uh, these two people. I don't even know what they did, but the Juliet Rickard and Derek Erdman, they made this character called Kathy McGinty in the year 2000. I don't know if you've heard of this at all, but it was, Basically, they pre-recorded voice responses to um, phone sex. And so when men called in, they would say something and they would just, the man would say something and they just press a button and the pre-recorded response would show up. Well, these pre-recorded responses were, some of them were absurd. Um, some of them, like one, one of them was, you sound like a racist, you know, in this very sexy kind of voice. Some of them were repeated. Like she keep going, it's Kathy. Hi, it's Kathy. I'm back. Oh, hold on a second. You know? And like, they would keep pressing that again and again. And they were obviously phony. And yet the men stayed on the line um, throughout 
<laughs> the entire call. And there's just like tons of these calls that are recorded um, to this Kathy McGinty character. Um, but I was just thinking about how driven by desire that was. And it was something that I found myself wanting to think about more when I was reading your books was about the why people want the things that they want here and how that leads them down the pathways that it leads them to. First, maybe just <laughs> the desire to create strong AI at all versus, and, you know, this sort of milder AI, you know, I mean, the spiritualism thing is a little easier for us to tap into because it's like, um, well, you want to talk to your dead relative, I understand. And this gives a different kind of possibility for life after death. But why would we even want to do this in the first place is my <laughs> is my question. And I feel like this must have come up for you a lot of times in your work. And then we'll sort of weave it back into spiritualism and the connections there as well. Uh, yes, um, actually, so, um, well, uh, uh, my first early uh, work was on spiritualism, the history of um, 19th century spiritualism. Um, and then, uh, like, my latest book is about AI. and. Um, I, of course, I've been asked, so what is the connection? And actually, I think that um, it was uh, thinking about what happened in seance, uh, in spiritualist seances. Uh, people were uh, receptive to any kind of uh, signal from uh, the beyond, yeah? And something that could have been uh, interpreted also as noise, as meaningless noise, was interpreted as as a communication and when i looked into you know the turing test and the other um even just a conversation that we can have with uh, chat both such as chat gpt or or many other ai uh, programs so i i felt that uh, there was something similar there was also this kind of uh, um attention to 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 be listening to communication uh, and and desire, as you said, yeah, to to be to be experiencing, you know, some some foreign connection with uh, with others, uh, and I think that's the the connection. And now it came uh, so to, and I think it played out in in the way I I, I looked at both uh, spiritualism and AI. Mm. So do you think then, like I'm thinking about how that applies. So if the desire is for a sort of connectivity through communication, forming um, signals out of noise and so forth, you know, do you think then that there's a, there's a longing to be, I suppose, witnessed by a different kind of observer? So if we're witnessed by the dead or, you know, I mean, if the dead is, if the dead are coming through and table wrapping, you know, um, spectacles, or if they're, if, if the observer is coming through, um, through some sort of impartial, fully logical binary, you know, being, you know, is, is, do you think that has something to do with that? Like, I want to be witnessed by a different kind of other, because it, it's just never apparent to me. Again, with the spiritualism stuff, I, I kind of understand, but it's never apparent to me why people want a strong AI in the first place. Beyond transhumanist, 
you know, uh, transhumanist rationalizations of wanting to live forever, that sort of thing? Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if people want a strong AI as much as they as they just um, uh, so desire to to find out. And um, you know, um, I so in the last weeks, I had some of my students, for instance, uh, make some experiences chatting with uh, this ChatGPT, this uh, very powerful uh, uh, language model. Uh, that can uh, so conduct a conversation with users, and uh, one of the first uh, the, the things that uh, several students reported about their interaction was uh, interaction trying to trick the the, the chatbot uh, into showing its uh, failure, its uh, limits, and this is uh, one of the most common ways we start, yeah, when we when we communicate with uh, with this machine. So. I think that um, it's, um, and, and this again is something that we can find in, in spiritualism. So many people who sat at spiritualist seances or was, who sit at spiritualist seances do not believe in spirits, but uh, they're interested, uh, moved to, to find out and to experience. And, uh, and so, I think so. It's it's hard to say, but probably at the core of this, it's uh, it's some deep uh, um, interest to 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 find communication, and uh, uh, you know, uh, communication is what shapes uh, our social interactions, our relationships, our everyday life, and uh, the possibility to 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 have something of this communication also. Um, in uh, in contexts where you know we we might have uh, before um, so thought that uh, there wasn't any possibility of communication like uh, about communicating with the dead or communicating with machines is uh, is probably just uh, at the core part of this uh, uh, so deep desire I guess mm-hmm. yeah or, or communicating with it in a in that communicating with the dead, particularly in that specific way where the dead were showing themselves through, you know, material, because people I'm sure, you know, had thought that they were connecting with and talking with the dead, you know, plenty of times, but it was the, maybe the, the desire and the impression of I'm going to remove this unknowingness by having something proven to me by a material manifestation, whether it's a knock or music or something that kind of bursts through into the material plane where I live, because otherwise I'll always be asking myself it's if it's my thoughts, which I, I find, you know, like the, this, the communication with the dead, is that just me thinking, is that just me feeling or wishing for it? Or is that real? Whereas the material phenomena, which we privilege, as having more weight as you know in reality then becomes to us the proof but that's interesting to me then because the <laughs> like the there's some sort of um right there's like different foregone conclusions in both of those with the dead it's that the dead are present and can reach out to us if only they have the right means and with ai it's that one day 
the AI being will be born through our actions. So it's not pre-existing in the same way that the dead are. It's that one day it will come to life. It will spring out of, I don't know, gestation <laughs> into, into birth and then come talking to us, you know? Mm. Uh, that's, uh, um, that's interesting. I, I guess, uh, I mean, if we push this uh, comparison, uh, one thing about um, communicating with the dead is that at the end of the day, you might be approached a spiritual seance with open mind. So you don't know what is happening and so on. But at the end of the day, you will either establish or decide, you know, that's, uh, that's it's uh, really communicating with the dead or that uh, it's just a trick or it's just a suggestion or anything. Yeah? Or you might just uh, waver between these two choices, but you don't see this wavering as a possible uh, uh, outcome, you know, you, you should uh, uh, at the end, so you, you want to, to find out. I don't know if th that's the case with uh, with AI. Um, not always, I think, because um, uh, uh, so, of course, you know, there might be the idea that, uh, you know, in the future, you could uh, uh, really communicate with uh, machines that uh, are sentient, are conscience, are feelings like us. And this is something that uh, one an idea that one may may entertain, uh, similar to what to what you were saying. But uh, there are a lot of people who also communicate with AIs, uh, even uh, if they know uh, that uh, it is just software. It is not sentient. It has no conscience. Uh, it has it doesn't feel uh, empathy or love. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, uh, this doesn't mean that they cannot also um, project uh, social uh, behavior on the eye. Um, so, if, for instance, you know, with voice assistants such as Siri, Alexa, uh, many users, you know, say good night to the assistant. They might say it doesn't mean that they believe that the assistant uh, uh, really likes uh, uh, being uh, said good good night, but it's just. Uh, you know, uh, applying a continuation of their social uh, habits and in um, in to to the relationship with the assistant, and even more, it happens with uh, uh, other uh, technologies such as uh, companionship chatbots, such as uh, Replica is a is a good example. It's it's an app that you download, and uh, you can then uh, um, entertain a conversation with the with this uh, with the chatbot with the, this avatar. Um, it's just software. Most users, I mean, most if not, uh, you know, all users know that uh, the chatbot is uh, is not uh, a, a, a like a person, yeah. Mm. But still, they they enjoy uh, uh, some of them enjoy um, entertaining a quite uh, complex and sometimes even deep uh, so social relationship with the chatbot or or just or they, they enjoy uh play uh romantic games or erotic games or they enjoy uh so playing with the idea that they have a friend in in the chatbot even if they know this is uh, not saint and this is not strong ai yeah so in a way there is also a possibility of a different uh, kind of engagement uh, with this um with this um uh ai so not just thinking it's uh, either alive or, or not, as in the case of uh, spiritualists. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of phone sex again, because people would call a phone sex line 
you know, knowing, I mean, if you just took a step back for two seconds, you would think this is not <laughs> someone at home sexually fantasizing with me. At, and yet then there's like a little bit of a, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny because most people probably, you know, listening to this under a certain age have no experience of phone sex, even really being in the world, but they, you know, cam um, performers or something like that. But even that's a bit different, but you might call like a phone sex line and have the person replicate, you know, the sounds and the, you know, the interactions that, you know, um, deepen your physical experience of your own fantasy. And I think, um, it's like we require some kind of out picturing, um, of what we, what we want to allow ourselves to have it. So how do I, how do I say this in a different way? It's like, um, when you were just talking about AI there and people interacting with, um, you know, these kinds of companion bots or whatever, it almost has like a, it's almost like a placebo for friendship. Like if I can evoke the feeling, then it will cure, you know, if, if I can use this cue to evoke something in me, it will have a healing or palliative effect for whatever it is I'm, I'm longing for. Like in some ways it becomes a, a question of wanting to, you know, evoke or conjure something um, from the AI as well. So that's reminding me also of this spiritual thing. But, you know, I, I, it was another concept I was thinking of a lot when I, when reading your work is the placebo effect and how, um, how that works. But also, interestingly, the placebo effect really works, right? Like people <laughs> then do heal themselves by taking pills that they know are not the right pills. You don't even have to be fooled by the placebo. You just have to, sometimes you just have to take it or sham surgeries or these other things that have been investigated by, um, you know, peer-reviewed medical journals. Hmm. No, that's a good point. I mean, um, we like to think that, uh, you know, there is a, a clear distinction between uh, fiction and reality in our lives but mm -hmm. uh, actually so there are so many degrees between them and the distinction is uh, rarely uh, so rigid and so so clear i think and um you know this uh, applies to so to the example of sex phones or or porn even so where you know someone might be aroused by uh, so by something that uh, you know, they know it's a it's a fiction. Even just uh, thoughts about sex, you know, that they might, um, of course, uh, play a role. But even um, in other aspects, like think about uh, uh, going to the to the cinema. You know, it's uh, uh, you know. <clears throat> so we know that we are uh, we know we are not experiencing a, a real event, but at the same time, we can uh, uh, get into the event. We can. Uh, Feel real emotions and um, and uh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, one of the so just to make example of horror movies, one of the ways many horror movies are marketed is by pointing to the fact that there are some uh, real events related mm. to them. Mm -hmm. uh, like for instance, The Exorcist was marketed uh, also uh, through uh, so by pointing to the fact that there is a lot of exorcisms in, in the Catholic Church. Right and uh, the conjuring uh, was marketing so this one of the most successful uh, 
horror movies in the last years was marketing uh, to the point that uh, it was based on uh, on uh, on the on the story of uh, people that really existed. So so there is a distinction even in fiction, yeah, that uh, uh, that interests us and so on. And uh, and the same also when we might interact with uh, with a bot or so on. And so there are uh, degrees of uh, of uh, just uh, uh, levels of uh, imagination and uh, um, in self deception that uh, we might play with. And uh, and like uh, like in the case of cinema, you know, the fact that we are able to feel emotions when we watch mm-hmm. a movie is what makes movies interesting. And if you think about a companion chatbot, uh, what makes it uh, work for for people who use it uh, is the fact that they are able to entertain this kind of uh, uh, fiction. Um, and you mentioned about the placebo effect because, of course, you know the the problem here and or the interesting thing. I don't know. It depends. Uh, um, <laughs> so how to look at it is that uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's unclear to what degree you are in control of this fiction. And uh, there might be um, one point where you uh, you fail to, to be able to, to remember or to clearly distinguish the, the boundaries between uh, uh, something that uh, as, uh, as empathy, as life and so on, and somebody, some, something that doesn't mm. have uh, uh, these, uh, these things, yeah? And um, and so the question I think in the next years uh, will be also to to see how these uh, these boundaries can be uh, held uh, when we have uh, so technology that uh, more and more exhibit a degree of likeliness, uh, seeming really as a uh, so real conversation partner, real relationship pattern, and so on, even if they are far to be uh, so. People uh, like uh, me and you, or concept, or or strong AIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well. Okay. So obviously, there's a lot there to <laughs> talk about. Um, I mean, first, I'm thinking of how these, you know, the things we're talking about, spiritualism and death, and pornography and sex, AI and creation. I mean, these are all like. Uh, I think Michel Serre calls them like hotspots, these, these places where like things can really erupt that actually change the real because they're so um, always agitated. They're so always like, they're, they're so always intense. Um, But I'm thinking, but I, I don't want to, I think I want to move past that actually and talk about the horror movie thing, because it's something that I've, I was going to do a PhD on it. And then I quit my PhD because I, I hated it, but the, <laughs> when I was doing a PhD, this is actually, it's actually how I came across your work was, you know, Supernatural uh, Entertainments was related to w- what I was writing about, which was um, why people watch, people, uh, horror movies are so popular and what you see in them is so popular um, to us, the supernatural encounter, the encounter that shatters the everyday but if you have an experience like that and you report it, you're stigmatized. And so it was interesting that Irving Goffman came up in your work as well, because you used the framing analysis and I was using the stigma um, <laughs> book that he was working on. But the idea that like 
what we see in there, it has such a real and potent effect on us in a sort of popular way. But then if it happens in our lives, if something in a horror movie, a supernatural encounter or whatever happens in our lives, it can actually shatter our concept of the real. So in some ways, the entertainment aspect is used to contain the the fact that it might completely disrupt our sense of lawfulness and stability, um, that it wraps itself around and allows it to be held in a way that makes things okay for us. Yes, yes. I think that, you know, there is, um, well, one of the... Um, the things I, I think um, that uh, distinguish uh, horror movies from uh, reports of uh, seances is that uh, usually uh, spirits in seances are quite uh, benevolent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the care for sitters, while in horror movies, they are often uh, an evil pre- presence. And maybe this is related to, uh, to what you were saying that, uh, uh, you know, if uh, something uh, like uh, an evil presence would. Uh, entering the real life this would be disrupting while in the experience of a horror movie it, it can be it is to many pleasurable to uh, to experience also elements of fears yeah mm-hmm. because it is uh, contained in this um, in this uh, fiction so yeah certainly it is contained but at the same time it is uh, it is not in the sense that uh, um there are uh, so there, there are leaks, yeah, in, uh, in, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there is a, a concept that is often used to talk about fiction and conception of fiction, which is this, the willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is um, this used, it was used first in literature, uh, and then you know, it is it's been used a lot for, for, for film. Um, and it refers to the fact that uh, when we uh, consume a product of fiction, like a novel or a film, we suspend more entirely our disbelief so that we can participate emotionally in what we are seeing or reading, uh, even if we know it's not real. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and um, it is certainly um, an interesting uh, concept, and uh, it, it speaks a bit to what you were, you were saying. But I think that the problem here is thinking about uh, this suspension of disbelief as something that is uh, momentarily, yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, something that just. Uh, uh, works in the in the, in the two hours yeah <laughs> right and right, i think yeah. this is doesn't uh, doesn't work so so well because first like people believe a lot of things in their everyday life i mean uh, a lot of uh, polls uh, uh, show that uh, uh, people so there are many people believing in uh, uh, things such as uh, ghosts uh, the supernatural uh, uh, spirits and so on ufos so, so the reason that robot, robots between, will take over uh, the world, is, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, yeah, and um, uh, so there is a continuity, yeah, there uh, between what we believe and what we, and and this is one one reason. And the other reason is that um, so we might also um, so uh, um, <clears throat> for instance, we might also enjoy a spiritual seance. A spiritual seance doesn't have. Uh, uh, to be uh, um, an experience that uh, disrupts uh, the real. A lot of people, uh, so for instance, in my, in my study, I, I saw that a lot of reports uh, of spiritual seances were pointing to the fact that it was uh, entertaining, that it was uh, pleasurable, and it was something mm-hmm. where people could just uh, 
go uh, and uh, uh, decide uh, on their own if uh, what would how to interpret what was happening and so on yeah so so even in in such a situation you you still have a lot of uh, flexibility in your interpretation and that's maybe mm. what uh, what goffman uh, would say about frames yeah I, I was thinking when you were saying that about the one book uh by georgina i forget her name but what was it evening at home and spiritual seance <laughs> like that it was almost like a night of entertaining when you would put out the you know the meat and cheese board and you know and then have people come over and you'd entertain the spirits with some light music you know and um yeah and i i I thought that was really interesting but then uh, you know that leads me to think about the you know private the private spiritual experiences being made public i mean that's a big part of you know your book and when I, so <laughs> there's like trances, channelers, there's like now this, you know, there was the psychic friends network for a while where like the phone sex, you could call a psychic, you know, on the telephone and they talk to you, even if they were, you know, broadcasting live. And then I'm thinking about in uh non-Western culture where you have like God men or street sorcerers in India where they would, you know, be performing some sort of miracle or whatever, but because some of that overlaps with the sort of cultural understanding or systems of belief that are provided by Hinduism and various other religions, um, that these miracles or these sort of magical feats get kind of more easily absorbed into the everyday, even though they're shocking, which I find very strange, right? Because so it's like, if you go to a seance or your computer starts talking to you or whatever it is, like there's a, there's a shock to the sense of the real. When you, in, if you would instead go see a, a, a God man or something like that, there would still be a shock, but it can be pulled into what is, you know, understood about how the world works. Um, you know, put another way, like just for personal experience, like I've had an encounter with a dead person actually a couple times and I have a relationship with dead and it's not something, I mean, I guess I'm popularizing it by talking about my podcast, but the podcast is free for everybody. I'm not trying to, <laughs> but these were not experiences that I, you know, performed on stage or anything. They just happened in my personal life. And um, because of my understanding of how things work, which a lot of that comes through, uh, you know, occultism and philosophy and, and so forth, it it all kind of made sense to me. It didn't shock the real. Actually, it deepened my sense of the coherence of what I was already kind of thinking. So rather than it being a, a shattering moment, there are people that experience these kinds of so-called miracles that... Actually, it's a it's a reconfirmation moment, if that makes sense. You know, you started this conversation talking about uh, strong AI, yeah? which is the idea that uh, there will be um, an AI that uh, uh, so is able to perform all all function like uh, human intelligence, so and uh, surpass also uh, so human intelligence itself, yeah, and. Um, 
So, of course, you know, there are people who believe that this strong AI uh, will be there, you know, and uh, and and um, they might be, uh, you know, communicating with, with AIs, uh, trying to look for that, yeah? And they might find it, uh, so in the future, because it, it happens or because they just imagine it. Mm. One interesting thing is that even if strong AI will happen, it will be hard to recognize Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that uh, that it is it has happened yeah because uh, if we don't uh, are in if we're not in the in the head of someone it's really hard to understand if these people is conscient is this people what these people is uh, what this person is or, or this this being is, is experiencing yeah so, mm -hmm. so we might not even even be able to recognize when when there is strong ai so there is this uh, uh, this dimension and and this is i think it's important it uh, it uh, talks to us about the issue of uh, of belief and of uh, of experiences that uh, might be striking um and might change our um our sense of the real and uh, and our uh, assumption and so on yeah but there is also another potential uh, engagement which may be uh, certainly today um is the experience that most people might uh, uh, have when they interact with uh, with these uh, technologies and this experience is just uh, uh, you know being uh, just open about interacting with uh, with a chat or with an ai mm. and seeing what's what's going on there and um and you know maybe just using the the chatbot as a tool mm -hmm. but this tool maybe it's uh, you know it's about having a, a kind of a friend mm -hmm. or so or maybe just uh, starting to think that that uh, that something more is happening yeah and um, so there are a lot of degrees of uh, potential uh, involvements and ideas that uh, we can have uh, with uh, uh, with um, so when we um, uh, so interact with this uh, um, technology and in this sense uh, i think that one of the uh, one one of the things that uh, I think we really need now uh, in our in debates about AI is that um, very often the debates are around this issue of strong AI, mm. if uh, there will be strong AI in the future. But uh, even technology that just uh, resemble humans that uh, can convince people that uh, they're able empathy, um, feelings, so on, can be extremely disruptive because they can... You know they can uh, lead people to to develop uh, uh, so you know relationships, interaction that are meaningful to them, and so on. So uh, so the, the problem might not be you know reaching or strong AI or not, but just uh, um, in you know, you know thinking about what happens when uh, uh, these technologies are able to deceive people uh, into believing. Uh, so so they are. Uh, they are you know like people yeah 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 well i mean it first of all like the idea that they'll be like people at all is like its own problem in the same way that viewing ghosts as just you know when you see the the spectral photography stuff and you see like a person putting their hand on the shoulder like as if that is necessarily what <laughs> someone arriving from the kingdom of the dead just looks like they're old 
form where, you know, with AI, we're like, well, yes, it'll be like a human. It can communicate with us. It could whatever. I found it much more alluring, you know, when I, I had James Lovelock on the show and in his book, Nova scene, he has this concept, which people think is wild. And I did too, until I really talked to him about it. And I found it much more interesting that like, actually AI will start to, you know, self-replicate and it will solve the climate crisis because its existence dep- will continue to depend on a certain homeoretic um, climate stabilization that is favorable to humans because they'll arise from, you know, uh, the same conditions that humans exist in. And I, th- I thought that was really interesting, but not necessarily that concept. Although I like that there was a hopeful version of AI sort of taking over, <laughs> but it gave me an image more of what if AI was not like a person at all. And it actually, when we had strong AI, but that it was something more like lichens covering a surface that was replicating itself, but didn't have the kinds of communicative abilities that we're constantly, you know, ascribing to AI. And so like, that's one thing is just the, the idea of it having these human qualities at all is seems to me to be off. And you, you address that, you know, somewhat and, in your work, but then also um, I love what you're saying about, look, because of this deception aspect of AI, that's actually just a part of it. Um, and w- without maybe, w- maybe we'll get to the components of that banal deception, as you call it later. But I, what I want to just say here is like with this banal deception, it because so much of what we believe AI to be requires this deception even the the Turing test and everything is, you know, about fooling, replicating, and all that. Um, if strong AI came about, it actually makes it much harder for us to recognize <laughs> because we're so used to looking for the flaw. So we we just might not even know it if we see it, but we also might not know it if we see it because we have bad ideas of subjectivity and otherness and how we're connected and our ideas of individuation and, you know, all that are also just philosophically kind of, you know, for the most part in everyday life, I think kind of shallow. So, you know, it's all kind of (laughs) coagulating together into a bit of a mess. And I, I, you know, I view what you're doing as trying to sort of pull apart elements that we don't think of enough just to keep them on our awareness enough to, be able to contend with some of the challenges. Um, yeah, well, first, like uh, this, uh, this idea of intelligence, yeah? And so when we talk about intelligence, uh, you're quite right. Uh, I mean, as it to be human intelligence, well, in the natural world, we know that there are different kinds of intelligence. And, um, and we also know that, uh, uh, that machines can, uh, can perform things that we would call uh, intelligence if performed by humans mm. in ways that are very different to how humans perform them yeah mm-hmm. so for instance if we lose a chess game uh, so uh, against a machine mm. a software as it will uh, it will certainly happen if we use the the best software for chess uh, so um, we might lose with a machine that plays a totally different game in the sense that uh, uh, to arrive to the to, to conclusion about what to do, they use dif- 
totally different strategies mm. uh, because they are different from us. They can uh, calculate uh, so much more, uh, so uh, much farther ahead in a, in a, in a game, and 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 they use them. Um, so if uh, if this uh, uh, software we are playing with. Uh, uh, is based on uh, on deep learning as uh, so the most recent software um, are are based. Uh, so it, we mean that we use just uh, very complex uh, um, statistical elaborations, yeah, to to be able to to decide which moves to do and so on, yeah. Mm. So so there will be something that uh, you know on the chessboard does the same as we as we do. So in this. Uh, uh, level playing field, which is the, uh, the 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 chessboard, it's on our same uh, um, so level, but uh, uh, but actually mm. we come to this conclusion in a very different uh, in a very different way. Yeah? So so this um, and and this will uh, uh, certainly is the case also for strong AI. If if strong AI so will ever happen, it might be something very very different from what we uh, imagine it might be something that uh, doesn't have much to do with uh, with human intelligence and um, mm. and and so and you know and this is on the one side and then on the other side there is the issue of uh, how we relate to these uh, things you know mm. when we when we play chess with uh, with a software we 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 know how so what the the, the, the software is doing so how the game is, is is going, but we don't know how the the software um, came to these uh, right, these moves, right. yeah. Right. So yeah. we don't, we cannot know that. So I mean, unless we we are able to analyze uh, the software, which is very complex and uh, usually mm -hmm. not uh, uh, something that users that uh, common users can do. So so we might uh, really just jump on about what is happening in uh, uh, in the computer uh, and um, and this of course even more when uh, this uh, computer this software is able to communicate with us in natural language with a vo voice that sounds uh, similar to the voice we encounter in our everyday life uh, that uh, as uh, seems to to have a gender seems to have a, a Oxford accent or or mm -hmm. an Italian accent, uh, and uh, and so on, you know. And um, these uh, uh, this forcefully uh, stimulates uh, will stimulate user to make assumption about the machine. And this is where the play uh, of imagination starts, and uh, and and where all the um, so the different interpretation or appropriation of what is a machine can uh, can develop. So we know that it starts there. It starts really uh, at um, at any point, you know, any 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 communication with the machine. There is a, a level of uh, of imagination of, of representation of what is uh, what is there, what is the machine. We don't know where it ends, you know. We don't know right. if uh, so. Maybe in the future, you know, um, there won't be strong AI, but uh, but we will be uh, all uh, all. Uh, um uh, so uh, decide that uh, we can uh, uh so have a lot of partners who are uh, machines and so on mm -hmm. yeah i mean it it 
it's something I always wondered about why people would always think that the code was what was producing the intelligence. You know, I mean, what, first of all, if you have any sort of, I mean, you could have a spiritual worldview, say if you were, you know, Shinto or you had some indigenous beliefs or something where you would say, actually, the materials are sacred sites where consciousness already inheres. So not the code. The code is just a byproduct of the intelligent materials that you've built the machine with in the first place. Like Rudolf Steiner says this thing that um, uh, something like a machine is a machine is thought poured into mineral. So like, you know, it's like we are already, (laughs) there's a consciousness pouring itself into the materials already. And then, you know, the function, that's just the motion of the already conscious beings. Um, So that's one thing. But then, um, you know, what you were talking about with a chessboard, it's like that again, there's like a sexual lesson there, right? Like if someone likes to, I'll just come up with some example. Like if someone likes flogging themselves, you know, with, with a whip or whatever, you could see two different people doing the same exact activity, but one of them is liberating themselves sexually through some sort of catharsis. And the other one is rewounding themselves by reliving, you know, trauma and deepening their problems. And it's the same exact act, but you can't tell subjectively what's going on by just looking at the outer experiences of what they're going through because you know, presumably when we talk about intelligence, we are talking in some ways about a kind of subjectivity with its own individuation. And so we would not know by looking at outer appearances, what was happening. And I think that that that's a big issue, but I want to take it to um, labor a bit because, you know, I read your anthology that you coded with uh, Diana walsh Pasoko has been on the show, Believing in Bits. It's it's great. And there's a part in there about the language of coding where the coding is so complicated now, maybe overly complicated, I don't know, but where people who are programming are putting a language that they do understand on top of another language that maybe they understand, but it goes, there's so many languages communicating to each other all the way down that, and I don't really actually like the word language, but it's something else, but they're doing something that's communicating all the way down that they actually, at some point, their understanding is removed from the process of what's being communicated. They're just kind of using a a certain set of signs, signals, symbols to communicate to others. But I was thinking about that, like, is, is AI in that case, like if something would come or appear to be living to us in some ways, maybe all we would be witnessing is an extreme form of labor alienation. Like I've done something that's so removed it from my field of understanding connectivity and even language and uh, cultural connection that it now appears to be, it's so distant from me that it appears to be alive. But in fact, all I'm experiencing is my own alienation looking back at me, you know? Now, that's a good point. Well, um, it, the fact is that, um, um, you know, a computer scientist uh, so works with uh, deep learning, neural networks, or the, um, some of the most performative uh, AI uh, uh, systems. So we know how the system works, yeah? Mm. But at the same time, 
the very functioning of these uh, technologies imply that uh, uh, part of what this technology will be doing will be outside of the control of the mm-hmm. the of the person yeah who, who programmed them yeah so how do they work is uh, basically they uh, so they are trained through a mass of data so you you, you take uh, uh, so let's say that um, uh, a computer scientist or an engineer or a developer wants to um, create a software to recognize photographs of dogs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they take uh, a big mass of uh, photographs and they feed them into the into the neural networks, mm-hmm. uh, saying to the neural networks, uh, these. Uh, 20,000 image photographs are photographs of uh, of dogs mm-hmm. these other 100,000 or 200,000 are are not photographs of dogs yeah then the system uh, makes a statistical calculation they don't look at uh, the photos as we do and we do look at them yeah they just uh, look at uh, at the at the bits uh, the zero and one yeah mm-hmm. and they um, and they and they came out with the ability. So after this analysis, they came out with the ability to recognize a, a new photograph of dog when when they are fed one. Yeah. And um, so so this process, how they come to to to, to do that, it's not uh, transparent to uh, to the developer. The developer might uh, just uh, try to understand it, and and it, it is possible to. To create so to to make analysis to understand how how it works, but it's it's still very complex, yeah. And uh, the the next stage has been also more recently first like uh, in areas such as also game playing, like uh, uh, with DeepMind, Google's DeepMind uh, software to play Go, this uh, uh, Chinese uh, game that is uh, said to even to be even more complex than chess. Uh, so they they basically they became um, able to uh, to just make uh, uh, so system that uh, do not need any um, any input from uh, from the developers like in the, the example I did I, I gave uh, of the photographs of dogs developers needed to say these are photographs of dogs right, these are right. not photographs of dogs so you you need to give some information in uh, in the case of uh, so these uh, uh, newer uh, generative technologies so you just uh, fed uh, a lot of games of Go to the machine without uh, giving any, any explanation. Mm. The machine learned to play mm. Go. Mm. And that's also similar to what happens with ChatGPT. ChatGPT right. is, uh, is this uh, uh, great so language model. It is extremely performative. They uh, trained it just uh, by uh, giving it access to an huge masses of uh, textual information. And the machine developed its way through that, yeah. And mm-hmm. so, to this, so there are ways to to uh, to find out, to analyze, and so on. But uh, but it does uh, escape a bit. And and this is where you know what uh, what you are saying come come in. You know that uh, uh, even uh, so, I mean, uh, there is um, uh, there is clarity in uh, now in uh, computer science that. Uh, the, the the present technology are not strong AIs, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> because still these uh, um, these uh, uh, technologies are, 
are opaque. And because also our own brain is opaque, you know, at the end of the day, it will be still a matter of belief. You know, if someone wants to believe that uh, right. this is actually sentient, they they can believe that. Um, we we are uh, we know. So I know that it's, uh, you are sentient, uh, Connor, uh, because I I I just know about my own experience with myself, mm-hmm. and I can project it onto you. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, it's different for me to understand that uh, a newborn baby, a one-day baby, and, and I have a daughter, one-year-old daughter, so I know um, I'm not talking abstractly. So what what she feels, what she um, so what she what is it? What is it happening in 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 her head? Yeah, uh, when she's one day old, and the same with uh, a dog or with uh, uh, with a bat, with uh, with a frog. And so on, yeah. And um, and so there is this uh, um, this uh, this this issue also with uh, with machines that uh, we will never be in their heads, and uh, and this leaves open, uh, you know, personal beliefs and so on. And already people are are already uh, so believing that uh, it has reached uh, a strong AI. So what I was thinking when you were talking was. Well, there's, there's a lot. I mean, one, just sort of going back to what I was saying before about subjectivity and what you're saying, like, we're going to have to figure out if we're going to start asking ourselves questions about what is actually conscious, um, as opposed to just intelligent, I think we're going to have to readdress, you know, subjectivity and, how we're connected and what that means. I mean, for me, solipsism has always proved the most interesting, just, but just poorly defined and explored. Like what would it mean to say that I'm the only one, but you are a part of me. And how do I understand you as part of me that appears to be separate, not in some sort of egotistical way, like I am the one you know, I'm the most important or whatever, but actually the world is contained within me. Now, how do I understand that? And that the external world is just the part of my inner world that appears to be outside of me. If we start asking questions like that, we could understand the difference between how talking with something that is, uh, its communicative abilities and aptitude are produced through code resonate differently within as you were saying, then speaking with someone, a, another human being, just like you were saying, yes, I, I know that you're real because I'm feeling this realness to it. It's not, I'm not a deep fake, you know? Um, if I were, I would have made myself look a little skinnier. But I mean, I think like, <laughs> if it, so, so there's that. But then, you know, I was thinking about chat GBT and what you're saying. I mean, obviously, it's something I was hoping to address on this episode with you because everybody's, you know, sort of talking about it, but writers like most writers, I know (laughs) fiction writers, they look at chat GBT and they're like, what? Like people think this is real. You know, (laughs) they have this like issue with it where the, the, the resonance of the language and the words that are used actually feels 
just off. I think the only one that felt kind of real to me was, I guess there was one of Slavo Zizek talking about chat GPT and it was like, you know, we can have chat GPT, we can have AI give classes and chat GPT write the paper so we can get all get on with our real lives. And like chat GPT produced that <laughs> response and it sounded very Zizek. But, you know, when we look at chat GPT, like, or that AI generated art craze that was happening, you know, and even, even that seems to have died down. It like flared up and then just sort of disappeared um, where people were using pictures of themselves. Um, it always showed me like how algorithmic so much of what we do already is and how outdated a lot of it is like, oh, ChatGBT can produce a paper comparing two thinkers and it sounds like a real student. Well, yes, but that's a bad assignment. Why are we still giving that assignment? You know, I just wondered, like, that's very predictable. Um, the And that just points me, and I'm sure you've heard people say this before, just to the truth that, you know, it it always has looked to me like we're just making ourselves dumb enough to think that computers resemble us, not that we're making code or computers any smarter than us or that they will see us. It's just that we're you know, relying so much on our own predictable patterned behavior and unwilling to, you know, move beyond that or go anywhere else. And so all we're doing is sort of dumbing us ourselves down until we feel like we're looking in the mirror. Well, um, so a lot of um, our uh, communication, uh, so our, you know, writings and so on, um is uh, quite uh, repeatable and quite uh, uh so um, so structured in ways that can uh, so easily repeated and so of course you know um one can think so let's think for instance about a translation yeah so um a software translating uh so poems by Baudelaire <laughs> will uh, will do a not a not a good job yeah mm-hmm. but the software uh, translating instructions of uh, washing machines uh, right. will make a plenty good job yeah and um, and um but even you know in our everyday conversation there are a lot of things so when for instance we call uh, um uh, like a phone service yeah to to ask uh, why our um so our phone is not working anymore, and so on, yeah. Or uh, to to ask for a first subscription. So our conversation will likely be quite formulaic, and uh, and that's why it can be very easily also repeated by uh, technologies uh, that uh, that uh, do this kind of service for us, yeah. And so so in a way we have to uh, acknowledge that uh, a lot of uh, our um, our uh, expressions and uh, conversations so on are are like that and um, mm-hmm. and that's why you know sometimes people f- say to someone that uh, he or she talks uh, like a robot yeah mm-hmm. um and it's it's a way we we talk about uh, uh so people uh, so being predictable or uh, very rigid in their um so expressions and so on yeah vocal expression and so on and um so so there is this uh, uh, so in 
at the end of the day, uh, these technologies, uh, I think, can make uh, a good service to to, to artists, uh, to but even to anyone who uh, just reflects on 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 themselves, on, on what they produce, and so on, by pushing us to think right. about what is uh, unique, what we do, and what we can express to people. Uh, because there are a lot of other kinds of uh, everyday communication that are not so uh, formulaic, and there are a lot of uh, uh, artistic uh, expression that are not uh, um, so formulaic. So, uh, so I think that's. Uh, that's uh, there may be a positive thing that uh, um, that can happen to the to the art world and to uh, and to culture more generally is that uh, uh, we can better recognize what is uh, distinctively uh, human, what is distinctively creative, and so on. Yeah, I love that you said that because that's I mean that's kind of how I've thought about things. It's like okay, I mean this can just sort of force us to up our game to be, you know, to really explore and understand ourselves a bit more. But then unfortunately, like, <laughs> I mean, is that however, is that's not usually how these things, <laughs> not usually how these things play out, you know? So it's, I mean, that, that is the hope because it has to be about how we greet it. You know, like you write about the deception, you know, like it's about what, what kind of outcomes come from what kind of deceptions and what kind of potentialities are there not is there deception or not i mean i think maybe i i would like to get to the point where it's actually no longer deceptive where where it's sort of laid bare what we're doing all the time when we use um when we use these technologies and we understand it and we're aware of it um in in a different kind of way but i but you're right you know definitely right it's like this is about how we're going to greet it and what we're going to see becomes possible. And so the idea that it would push us further, that we'd be like, okay, I've got to do better. I mean, that really, that really does matter. Um, And the predictability of so much of what we do is, I think, I wish that that were being exposed a bit more in these conversations, you know, like a lot of art criticism in the past, whatever, 10 years has been very similar, for instance, like it's got this kind of, you know, I'm not saying I don't like any of this, but it it often will have a specific kind of political angle that's really repeating a kind of political talking point rather than exploring the art, you know, in its own terms. Um, And I don't mean that from either political side or right or left or anything. I'm just saying that those kinds of themes come up in art. So they reference something. If you, you know, a lot of TV shows obviously have the same structure. Um, Novels have the same themes. Um, There are remakes after remakes of movies. Like we we should be interrogating, you know, and in academia, don't even get me started on academia, right? (laughs) Like we should be interrogating these dangerously repetitive, unthinking um, behaviors, which then we get offended when the machine can reproduce it, or we get scared or, you know, best case scenario, you're dazzled by it when you're 15 and you get one to write your paper for you and turn it into your (laughs) teacher. We should be offended by our own behavior 
not the behavior of the thing that's replicating us, <laughs> you know, and so we, if we're going to be offended or, or afraid or whatever, and then sort of move beyond it. I think maybe that is a big difference in this spiritualist. The social movements around each of these things are completely different, it seems. Um, you know, whereas with spiritualism, you had people like Victoria Woodhall and so forth who are pushing for sexual liberation, women's right to vote, um, you know, including, um, especially in the U.S., including Black people in public discussions and issues and even in political um, positioning. Whereas with AI, it mostly seems to be, while the users are, are, are varied, the people producing it are mostly, it seems, ensconced in high um in in big you know sort of corporate or institutionalized uh places that you know a lot of them just make a lot of money and they're hoping that the genie pops out of the computer screen at a certain point and it's upholding status quo in a lot of ways so um yeah yeah no that's uh, you throw so so many different and wonderful um <laughs> ideas so so i i'll i'll, I'll first uh, go Talk about a, a bit more about the replicability, which mm. is I think it's great, uh, a great uh, topic. Uh, and then I will also look at this uh, more political question, which I which I find so very important as well. So, well, replicability. I mean, a lot of the things we do in our everyday, everyday life are replicable and repetitive, and that's and that's good because uh, if uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, at, uh, when we reach. Uh, uh, so we have to pay at the supermarket, which we, we would every day be surprised by different uh, interaction. Yeah. So we would be lost. We wouldn't be able to navigate uh, the world effectively. So, um, um, so I think the issue is uh, how to 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 um, how to use this to navigate the world effectively, but at the same time also to be able to. Uh, develop spaces for uh, uh, originality, change, uh, and so on. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and this goes from the very banal and uh, ordinary to the, the artistic expression. Uh, so, for instance, you know, I like when uh, when I go to a place, I like take to take different uh, paths. Yeah, because I get uh, bored if every day I use the same path. Yeah, to go there, mm -hmm. and um, so so in uh, so there is a, um, um, a tension in our lives between uh, replicability, replicability, which is necessary and comfortable, but also, you know, change and so on, innovation. And, uh, and this tension is also present in art. And um, um, uh, so you, you mentioned uh, remakes and, uh, you know, superhero movies, uh, you know, and one can say, you know, that they all look the same. Um, it's been, uh, uh, yeah, they do look the same, but uh, at the same time, they are different. So there is always a tension uh, between repetition and uh, an innovation. In the in the worst scenarios, or in the world, in the in the less uh, uh, significant, you know, uh, artistic expressions or or films and so on, such as films, uh, these uh, the replicability. So the repeat. The repetition is uh, is much uh, so uh, much more than 
than the elements right. of innovation. Yeah, right. but there will always be a play between the two. Yeah, so so and it's where we we should uh, uh, work as uh, as humans, uh, and so also uh, with or in the presence of uh, machines that also uh, so uh, move in this way. And, and it, uh, so machines can. Uh, can be able of repetition, but they also they're also able able to uh, to innovate, basically. Even you know, maybe not in the same way where you talk about innovation in art or or in other human uh, so areas, but um, but still, you know, you can program a machine uh, for doing artworks that go beyond uh, the canon, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so this is another another complexity there, and um, I might leave this aside. But uh, it's what makes uh, perhaps uh, these uh, uh, these uh, technologies uh, uh, so all the more challenging for uh, uh, for um, uh, present and future uh, discussion about creativity, art, and so on. Yeah, and then yeah. I want to yeah. Can to I just say on. something to that no, please, before sir, you please, before please. you? do the political part because I want to talk about the political part as well um, a little deeper, but let me just say to that, like, you know, um, so like, like you were saying before with these kind of like robot companions or, you know, like uh, program companions or whatever, like the, the sense of warmth um, that is generated from them is very, if it at all is based on a certain kind of series of cues that is not the same kind of warmth that's generated when people interact with each other. Um, it's different, you know, in the same ways that, um, you know, uh, I would say masturbation is, you know, a type of sex, but it's not the same as sex. Seeing a Tyrannosaurus, you know, skeleton in a museum is not the same as seeing a, a photo of it you know, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that there's no overlap there, but obviously there's a distinction in how we experience it. And they're pretty bad at warmth, I would say, uh, a sense of, uh, a, that sense of emotive connectivity um, that feels like connecting with another person. And so when we're talking about repeatability and innovation, you know, in occultism, we'd say, you know, there are different bodies that there are different um, there, you know, that we have different bodies. The etheric body is the body that does the sort of repeating thing. It's our heartbeats are the blood going through our veins, sort of growth and assemblage processes. And the astral body is the emotive body. And then there's the ego and the mineral body and so forth. But, um, but it, it like, you have to have these repetitions like you were saying, to be able to build on this etheric property um, is essential to life, and it's and it's important to strengthen it. But it's so, in a lot of ways, a lot of other kind of soul activity, mind activity can take place. Um, so I think that you know when we're talking about innovation, it's like the kind of innovation that comes out isn't connected to that astral emotive body usually that's a lot of times where it falls short but also i do you know want to acknowledge what you're saying that the repeatability in our lives it is very important it's an essential aspect of our our own being um to create a little bridge for you between that and the and the political stuff and then just let you sort of go onto that for a bit i was thinking about that originality the change um the the way that 
the emotive aspects and the artistic aspects are emphasized in the spiritualist movement because there's a spiritual quality to them um, leads to a certain kind of politic. Now, obviously, it doesn't always lead to a good politic. I mean, the the Nazis were using uh, occultism, and you know, <laughs> plenty of <laughs> plenty of fascists are interested in it as well. But like, um, but that it lends itself to a certain kind of political liberation that I, I'm not sure will be available for um, this kind of, you know, te- tech that doesn't allow those different kinds of aspects to burst into what they're working with. Okay. Sorry. That was a lot of talking, but I'll let you, I'll let you just go off for a while if you want. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for, for the, I mean, I think the political issue, question and thoughts you are you are um, giving are very um, so are very important and you know we have to remember that uh, a lot of these technologies originated uh, in uh, specific cultural uh, and uh, uh, economic and political environment because everything is political such as for instance uh, uh, you know companies that um, are from the US and maybe from a uh, a specific part of the US such as the Silicon Valley and um and they originated in uh, in the context of a uh, of um of an idea of uh, of an ideology also uh, uh, that is uh, libertarian but at the same time uh extremely focused on uh, individualism mm. um and um and that's uh, and that's Maybe part of the of the problems you are saying, and I think that uh, in the future it will be very important that uh, to contextualize more firmly uh, these technologies in a, in in a plurality of cultures. Of course, this is already happening because uh, you know the impact of any technologies depends also on the cultural and social uh, context where it is uh, uh, where it is moves. And um, and this even more for technologies that enter in communication interaction uh, with uh, with users, um, and uh, because so these uh, cultural context, uh, cultural social contexts are always uh, diverse. Uh, they are um, always local. They are always uh, um, framed in uh, um, in. Uh, uh, different um, worldviews and uh, uh, religions and um, um, and uh, spiritualities uh, uh, and just uh, uh, cultural assumptions and so on. Uh, their meaning shifts in uh, in different uh, contexts, and um, so so something of this is already happening. And and I think so. The important thing will be uh, in, in the future to to make sure that uh, there is space uh, for uh, uh, for uh, this diversity, not just uh, um, uh, from the side of uh, who uh, uses these technologies, but also from the size side of uh, who's uh, uh, producing them. Um, and there is already an element, so some diversity, because uh, um, you know there are developers all around the world. But of course, uh, there's been a dominance. Uh, of uh, um, you know some uh, some companies, so I think 
um, I think probably um, we should work uh, in this direction to make sure that uh, uh, that there might the, the different uh, uh, views associated with these technologies uh, can emerge. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I think that's all right. Like the the class issue is the one that seems to be the the one that won't really get cracked so readily. <laughs> I mean, first, who has access to even the technologies that the um, AI is, you know, uh, stuff is, I mean, increasingly more people, but who has regular access to it and who has good access to it. But like beyond that, who's being employed by whom and what kind of class structures are in there. Whereas, you know, as you write with the spiritualism stuff, it's like, there's a little bit more of a class, uh, uh, you know, equality in there because it's accessible by uh, anyone. If that's <laughs> look, this might sound like I'm I'm saying uh, they're just two perspectives, but what I'm trying to get at is that when there is a kind of inherent spiritual um, presence or bid or direction in the exploration of what's beyond human intelligence and what we can use to build art on and build uh, political movements on and so forth. When that's in there, uh, it allows for all sorts of different possibilities. Of course, you know, spirituality has also been seized by theocracies and, and so forth. But I'm just thinking about that availability in the class element that was like you too can speak to the dead and by the way if you're a woman you'll be able to access a kind of notoriety by you know having this kind of connection and by the way we'll be able to meet and talk about um sex we'll be able to meet and talk about uh women's issues we'll be able to meet and see people uh of as you said, you know, a man, a woman, a man, a woman, a man, a woman in the audience um, to generate a certain kind of uh, almost kinetic sexual tension and then, you know, perform in that sort of uh, warm, agitated atmosphere. And that is just all, for me, in some ways, indicative of the importance of bringing spiritual questions to bear in when we're talking about AI rather than, you know, um, just sort of letting it be a sciencey, techy kind of thing. Um, and I think that, you know, you do a great job with that. I mean, you're, there, there aren't enough people, you know, doing that, I don't think. And so when I, you know, I mean, maybe the last thing I'll touch on here then is just to ask you if you think that there are modern day, um, uh, confluences or convergences of AI and spiritualism, not um, not necessarily how these two movements might intersect either as analogies or metaphorically, but how people are actually using the technology now in spiritual ways. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, you know, for, in my book, in the Sitful Media, I... I I make the point that uh, developers can always uh, try to anticipate uh, how users will react and therefore they can uh, uh, opt for specific design choices that they think 
will invite uh, specific reactions or perception. For instance, uh, you know, they might decide that a voice assistant should uh, should have a voice that uh, mimics uh, a female gender because they feel they feel that uh, this will uh, will create some uh, uh, some um, outcomes in the, in the conversation. Yeah. However, so nothing, so not everything can be anticipated. We are always able to to um, challenge yeah, this uh, what uh, how the um, um the machine was designed and how how it was thought that we would uh, react or uh, receive or participate uh, uh, share comment like and so on uh so in through, through a platform and uh, or or by interacting with a technology so so there is always an element of uh, of space or freedom in uh, in how we use these technologies and um, and and this leaves space, I think, for uh, for uh, spiritual uh, engagement, uh, um, and not just with that. Not just that. I mean, uh, um, so I think uh, there was recently this um, uh, news about um, this group uh, of uh, youth uh, who um, started a kind of uh, ludite um, club or movement. Uh, refusing to use um, iPhones and so on yeah and actually I I had a um, seminar with my students for uh, for a few years uh, which is about this connection and part of this is uh, about mm. um, asking them to disconnect from uh, mobile phones for for a week and uh, and use this uh, experience as a, as a way to reflect on their on their use of technology on their relationship wow. with technology so and and I think what is interesting there is not just uh, the idea to to um, uh, to um, uh, to get rid of technology, to not use technology to disconnect, but uh, the idea of thinking about uh, reflecting about uh, our use, uh, our relations with technology itself, uh, and um, so these uh, groups of people would decide to to give up. Uh, um uh phones they are so they are doing so because they are taking this relationship for for you know uh, seriously and they are um thinking that this doesn't work in this way for them and uh, and they need to to react and so on yeah we might react in very different ways but the important thing is that we are able to ask questions to be um uh, to be to be ourselves and to um, and to to be deep, to be uh, thoughtful, uh, uh, to be aware and attentive uh, when we use the, the technology. And uh, if we do so, um, so we we will be able to you know to to navigate in a better way, probably. So so our life. Um, and, and it might lead to very different directions, uh, a spiritual direction, and also just uh, so practical direction. But uh, uh, but it will be uh, so. Yeah, it will be Asia. Say so. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I think you know my friend Mark O'Connell, who's been on the show a few times. It, you know, his first book is called uh, To Be a Machine, and it's about transhumanists. And his second book is called 
uh, notes on the apocalypse, which is about doomsday preppers. And a lot of the people who are Silicon Valley tech people are also doomsday, <laughs> doomsday preppers. And one of the things that that illustrates to me, and, and there was even something about, you know, recently about the guy who, I don't know if it was the guy who developed chat GBT. I should really know this if I'm going to make this statement, but it one of these main developers also had like a stockpile of guns and so forth. And um, was he had like 80 guns or something like that. And like a, a bomb shelter and so forth. And the way that people talked about that revelation was, so he must believe that the AI is going to take over and he's suspicious of it. And we should all be worried about that. And I thought, why are you not focused on the fact that this guy has 80 guns and like, <laughs> it's like separatist prepper shelters. The story is AI is going to take over. You know, I thought that was so ridiculous because our imagining of what will happen with these technologies, it, people are so carried away with it and they're being carried away with it leads to a kind of um, inevitability of what will happen with it. Um, it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. I actually don't maybe like that. I just would say that the forward motion of this kind of fear rather than a clearer idea of the possibility and potential if it's met right. But that requires a lot of self and cultural and social development. And uh, <laughs> I mean, hopefully, you know, my, my hope is that we'll achieve that. Um, but, you know, the p- point being, I think, your work really helps us see a lot of this more clearly. And I'm really appreciative of it. So thank you so much, Simone Natale, for coming on the show. Thank you, Connor. And it was really a pleasure to to talk with to you. And um, thank you for, for the many so insights and ideas you put into this conversation. And so it w- wouldn't have been the same if I would have uh, talked with a bot in the last uh, <laughs> couple of hours. Great, great compliment. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye now.